that uh, that text there that's in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it's saying there have been people of faith, like in Hebrews 11, it starts right from the very uh, early days of mankind, showing how they had to uh, trust God, had to live by faith. And, uh, of course, you can think of uh, Abraham and uh, all the patriarchs and Moses and such. What a great cloud of witnesses there. huh? They, they've gone before us. And as we look as, at how God works through them, really what the deal is is that, yeah, they had a life of faith. Of course, they had to battle many of the things that we talk about, whether it be physical ailments or whether it be spiritual battles. They had all of those too. And we know that sin can take advantage of those situations and, and uh, try to take us down. And so we are to run that endurance race. Uh, he has set it before us. And as we do that, we fix our eyes on Christ. So that's going to be our whole, um, I think you can say, our, our motto as we uh, look at the next few weeks here. Uh, we call this post-Reformation because we've, we've done the Reformation and, and it's really what happened shortly thereafter after those very early days of the Reformation and how it takes us to where we are now. And uh, like that's you know how, how we got from there to here. How, how's it happen? And we see all the challenges that the Reformation uh, had, uh, all the people that was in, uh, involved in it all throughout um, those centuries from the 1500s till now. And it was momentous occasion, um, the Reformation was. But we know wherever God is and He is working His work in the church, the enemy is there too. And the enemy would like to uh, suck anything up that's happening for good. But God's going to make sure it marches through. Um, Prolific attacks have come on the church uh, for... Centuries and centuries and centuries. But we can just look back uh, in the last five centuries or so. And you look at the book of Acts and, and, and you see all of that same kind of stuff happening. Uh, Reformation, even as great as it is, and we thank the Lord for the Reformation, outside of Pentecost, it probably is the greatest revival that the church has ever known, where it got back to the Word of God. That's why we mention it so much, because um, if it weren't for the Reformation... Um, we would probably not be under the authority of the Word of God, but under the authority of men. And that's where it comes down to, the Word of God and um, being justified by faith. That's one of the the big uh, claims of Reformation that uh, we we hold on to. Uh, Another Yeah. (laughs) Matter of fact, I think that's why the Reformers, some of them came up with this uh, slogan, Semper Reformandi which means always reforming. And so it it never ended. It just got started. And as individuals, we are always reforming. And you look at this Hebrews 12. Let, let's run that race. Uh, we know that we can be so easily entangled by sin. Keep your eyes on Christ. And look, you know, look at Him. Look at the cross. And uh, realize that that's where we get our strength from. So there was... Uh, in Protestantism even though it divided from the Roman Catholic Church, it also had its divisions. It had attacks from without and from within. And we're not going to be spending time on the biography of Luther, which you know we've done that before. Um, wouldn't hurt to go over it again, but we've, we've kind of done that. Um, Calvin, we're really not going to really go much over him. We did several uh, people that uh, were um, in the Reformation and then in the Puritans. So we're not really spend a lot of time on, on uh, particular individuals, but we're going to see what was happening during these epics. And we'll see that as, as time goes on, it's going to run into things like the Enlightenment. How did uh, Reformation theology, how did Christians deal with uh, with that, how did they deal with uh, the, the philosophies? What about the 1800s in uh, mid 1800s, where Germany uh, comes uh, so hugely uh, attacking the Word of God, and uh, right inside the church even and outside it? What, what do we do with those individuals that were considered to be the elite thinkers, uh, the great um, sophists of the day? 
and then all the way into the 1900s and where you have even the authors that affected people's lives and the way that they wrote, good or bad. Um, so, But we take a worldview. We take a worldview. We put our glasses on. The Holy Spirit uh, is going to help us see, right? And we're going to be able to see uh, Scripture and then see how it worked through those times and how the church was doing. One guy we might look at a little bit, we've never really touched on him very much ourselves, and I'm not going to spend much time on it, but it was, uh, we'll say, okay, there was Luther, there was Zwingli. And we think of Zwingli, and we go, oh yeah, what, what was he about? Uh, Zwingli was uh, a minister, and he was converted after he had been doing ministry. Um, one thing that he's noted for, he's one of the very first to do it in the Reformation, maybe maybe the first. He did verse-by-verse verse teaching of the Bible. Now, that doesn't sound too strange to us. But to the people in the pew at that time, that was absolutely unheard of. It was unthinkable to do. And so he announced, he said, next week, we're going to begin preaching from the very first chapter, first verse of the book of Matthew, and we're going to take each verse and go through it, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all the way through the book of Matthew. And then after that, we're going to take up another book in the New Testament, and then we're going to go to an Old Testament book, and we're going to do the same thing. We're going to do verse by verse teaching. Now that, like I say, that doesn't, that sounds like, well, so, but the people were um, just not used to that. But some people became became adapted to it, and they liked the Word of God being explained. Uh, so, uh, we're talking about Scripture being expounded, reading the Word, and then explaining what it is, instead of taking, you know, the liturgy and making that the focus. The Word of God became the focus. Um, now, where spiritual life uh, appeared, the establishment started becoming concerned with what Zwingli was doing. And so he was challenged by a bishop of a place that was nearby there, Constance. And the bishop uh, tried to take on Zwingli. And um, I believe that Zwingli actually tied the hierarchical hands up uh, because the people were becoming, uh, I think, just enthused by the Word of God. They were being affected by it. They liked the way it was preached. And so he he bested the bishop uh, as they debated. And uh, it, the bishop didn't have a chance. Zwingli kept preaching. Um, he had 65 articles of faith that he wrote. And he showed that he didn't get his Reformation understanding theology just from Luther. A lot of people are affected by Luther, and that's why the Reformation went. Uh, that's not to uh, downplay Luther. It was just that as Luther was being um, changed by God into heading up this Reformation, Zwingli, too, was. Zwingli from Switzerland, kind of south. Up in the north, you have the Reformation going there in Germany uh, with, with Luther. So he was a co-reformer. He was not somebody that... Uh, was um, being affected by Luther. It was that's what God was doing. Here's one place, and here's another place, and so God is is doing that. So it wasn't the writings of Luther. Now it might have been what he had heard that Luther was doing that uh, that he liked, but uh, even the writings didn't affect him too much. There were parallel movements. And of course, you, you think of like in the Book of Acts where we've been. Paul is doing his thing, going to places, but we, we know that there are places that have already been going, uh, especially in, in Palestine and up north around there in Syria and such, uh, even before he even became uh, a Christian. So there's a lot of pockets that, that are happening, and so it is here. He had a problem. His problem was the Anabaptist. Um, and, uh, of course, they opposed infant baptism. They were the rebaptizers. And um, he kind of went along with that at first. At first, he was kind of thinking the thing over, and he didn't see a big deal um, about rebaptizing. And then I think because of the constituency, 
and because of the pressure on from um, the people in the pews, he uh, went back to uh, infant baptism, and he battled it out with them until finally, actually, they 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 killed some Anabaptist. You might know that story. Yeah, Barb. What do you mean by rebaptizing? What kind of circumstances did somebody? Under what kind of circumstances did somebody get rebaptized? Well, the Anabaptists were all for a second baptism. You have everybody's baptized in the in the Catholic Church, right? Right. Okay, uh, as infants. So what the Anabaptists wanted to do is people who had faith were to be baptized again. Well, that upset everybody because it it had been so influenced in Roman Catholicism. That's one of the the biggest beliefs that they have is infant baptism. And so uh, the Anabaptists... Now, the Anabaptists weren't so reformed, but they were coming out of the Catholic Church. And they're another angle. But does that help a little bit? If if you're coming from a, a, a baptism that pretty well is guaranteeing that you'll go to heaven and all of a sudden even though through the, though there's biblical teaching um, the, they stayed with the the infant baptism now later on it's going to change and, and of course Luther's going to come along and kind of re kind of change that up a little bit and then Calvin and some other guys or <laughs> are going to probably change it a little bit more the meaning it's it's difficult the lord's supper's difficult well, R.C. says that Reformed theology believes in infant baptism. I mean, that's one of their... Mm-hmm. But not the salvation. Yeah, but right. not the way that it would have been taken. The Catholics definitely believed in a regeneration. That's baptismal regeneration. That's how you start your salvation. Of course, you're not guaranteed. Right. But, and, so, and so you have your, your covenant theology and such, which has an infant baptism, but they will never say that that's a regeneration, at least for the most part. Okay. But and, and you get into that in this kind of history. And this is where they have some battles. And, and it's been battles ever since then. <laughs> and it's a shame because it, it divides the church right down down the middle. <laughs> and, and, you know, people have good spiritual and scriptural arguments for, for both. But um, the Anabaptists really stirred up uh, some things. Uh, and they became enemies of the church and the state, which Zwingli was uh, all about. Matter of fact, uh, he fought the Roman Catholic Church. They had there was a Protestant army, and there was a Roman Catholic army, and he was killed uh, fighting in war against the Catholics. Um, he was the chaplain of the army at the time. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, that's some of the things that were happening in in the church. That's that's quite a. Um, Provocative, isn't it? Think about it. But uh, that's that was what was going on as they fought for spiritual truths. <laughs> um, just a moment about uh, Calvin. In in Reformed theology, there are different branches. We usually think, okay, Reformed theology is Reformed, but you have first of all, Luther is the one who's kind of like the granddaddy of them all, along with Zwingli, but. You have Lutheranism and Calvinism, which are the two main arteries. But there's a third one also, and that's called Anglican. And that would have been the Church of England that came out of the Roman Catholic Church. England didn't want the Roman Catholic Church there anyway. So they adapted. And they, they're Reformed in, in, to some degree. So they're, they're considered to be a part of that too. And then you have other people, which would be very small minority, uh, the, the Anabaptists. And so that's what's going on. You can think of the two major groups, or three there, I think, probably is the best way to think of it. Uh, Just a a quick moment. Calvin uh, was kind of like almost second generation. As Zwingli, about the time that Zwingli died, Calvin became converted. And Luther lives a little bit longer. He never met Luther. They had heard of each other. Um... But anyway, Melanchthon, who is one that was right underneath Luther, called Calvin the theologian. He was the theologian of the Reformation. Even though he had monergism and predestinarianism. And we'll get to that in a moment. 
uh, Calvin's Institutes, that was the, the big books that he wrote on theology. He was one of the first to come up with it. Uh, um, I think that was in 1536 when he came up. He was like 25 years old when he wrote the Institutes. Think about that. That's incredible. Calvin, and they're still with us today. That was a systematic theology. Um, and some people say, well, Calvin was a Lutheran, followed Luther. And then other people will say, no, Luther was a Calvinist. Uh, um, Roger Nicole said John Calvin was the great Lutheran <laughs> in that in their theologies, except for maybe a couple of things, you know, they were really in agreement. Most of the Reformed theologians were in agreement on almost everything, right down the line. But, you know, there, there's still the struggles, and of course the sacraments is where, where that's at. Um, of course, we know he settled in Geneva, and he wrote, he taught, he preached, he organized, he corresponded, helped lead the city. Anyway, we know that, so you have three big names there. You have Luther, Zwingli, Calvin. And of course in Geneva you had a whole host of uh, great names that came out of there. Booser is one of them. And later on John Knox. Go back to Scotland. Okay, what's the saddest event in the Reformation history? Early Reformation history. And this goes to show you that man is man. Even though they're at their height of being people of the Word of God, being spiritual people, and so that's what we're going to look at. Um, I don't think there's anything quite as sad as, as this event. Uh, it's called uh, Colloquy of uh, Marburg. Colloquy might be pronounced that. Um, Reformation, we know, is the greatest, probably the, it's been said by many people, the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit outside of Pentecost. Um Nothing since that time of the Reformation. There's never been anything like it. There was a great awakening, but it didn't last very long, and it was still very uh, narrow compared to what this was. But the world, the flesh, and the devil oppose it. I think of Ephesians chapter 2. kind of gives our enemies here. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, who's that? Satan. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, the world, the devil, the flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Of course, Reformation theology discovered that, that we were totally depraved. We were children of, of wrath. That was our nature. And, um, of course, that is a major teaching in that. Um, what you have is Zwingli is learning that Luther, there's a guy by the name of Luther in Germany, teaching the same thing that he's doing. You know, word of mouth gets that around too. And they're, they're both coming out of what everybody knew. There's only one church, basically. I mean, it was split though. We had the Eastern Orthodox. But as far as they're concerned, that, that was where they came from. And um, God is just doing extraordinary things in different areas. It's not going to be for too long before it's going to go right on into uh, the rest of Europe. Uh, England, where it's huge there, I mean, all within a short amount of, of uh, a few decades, this thing is just spreading. The meeting was set for Luther and Zwingli to get together because they had all these things in common. They wanted to see how much they had in common. Now, you don't have phones. You don't have Internet. You don't have any kind of radio TV. You're just hearing some things about somebody and you're going to get together with somebody like this. And it's exciting because they're understanding Scripture like you are. And isn't that natural? Christians are drawn to other Christians and you understand somebody else has this and you go, yeah, have you heard this? <laughs> so that's what they're going to do. They're going to meet at Marburg and that's our, uh, it's one of the Lutheran centers in, in Hesse there in, in Germany. And Prince Philip, who is 
part of the state is the one who's putting this together. Huh? Hosting it. Hosting it. Yeah, hosting it. Right. He he hosts it. Uh, he he convenes the meeting, and they come together. Now, Luther and Zwingli are very fiery. They are two real fiery individuals. And you know anything about Luther? It's hard to imagine somebody being close to his equal. But Zwingli would be in that category. It takes guys like that to go through and do what they did, to start preaching the Bible verse by verse in a church that doesn't want that to happen. <laughs> and so you can imagine it takes those kind of personalities. Well, um, they, it, I think somebody's pretty intelligent, pretty smart, because what they do is they couple not Luther and Zwingli together. They're going to both be there, but there's going to be a couple other individuals, and coming along with Luther is going to be this guy by the name of Echolampadius. And he comes from Switzerland, of Basel. Uh, Luther has Melanchthon. What, what they're going to do is they're going to pair Luther with Echolampadius. So there's your German and there's your Swiss. And Zwingli is going to be with Melanchthon. Because they know if you get those two firecrackers together, you're going to have dynamite. It's just things are going to explode. Martin Bucer just happened to come along, too. Um, they agreed on every doctrine, one after another, after another, after another. I mean, they, you know, where, the, where Jesus he prays that we would be of one mind of one spirit, right? We are of one spirit. We are of one mind. We're to have unity. Jesus prayed that the church would have unity. And and they do. He's the one that gives the unity. It's just that we have to be able to exercise that unity that He's given us. Well, there was one difference. And that's where it came up with this Lord's Supper. The body of Christ. The Eucharist. And um, Luther wrote on a velvet cloth there, Hoc est corpus mumi. This is the body of Christ, really, is what it comes down to. It was non-negotiable. Now, earlier, a few hundred years before this, the Catholic Church had come up with transubstantiation. And that's where we know that the bread and cup was changed into the body of Christ. Luther couldn't go with that. Uh, before him was a guy by the name of William Ockham who drew up trans, uh, consubstantiation where Christ is uh, he's under, he's with, and he, he's in these, these elements there. Uh, anyway, Luther adopted that view uh, saying that the body was present with the sacrament when the person received that bread and cup. It's not... Too much different than transubstantiation, but he could not say that that was a transferal. You know, that now is the body of Christ. He, he's just in it and with it and under it. So, um, of course, the Swiss come back and say, yeah, but Jesus said, I am the vine. Right? Putting a, a spiritual sense behind that. He is the vine, but what, what, what does that mean? Is he... In a literal line, I am the door, right? But um, let's say Luther is right. Did he make the right decision in rejecting anybody who differs from him? He says, you are of another spirit. That's what he's saying of uh, Zwingli. And um, that's what he told him. He says, uh, you have a non-Christian spirit. And so he sees Zwingli saying no to Jesus. That's what, he, as far as he understands it. And you could say, well, how can he say this? Well, in Matthew 26, 26, Jesus makes a statement. The night before he's crucified, he institutes the Lord's Supper. He says in 26, 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, He broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is, Eston, 
This is my body. And Luther says, that's it. This is my body. And so he goes with that. And of course, the Swiss come up with, well, how is Christ any more present in the sacrament if He's corporally present than He is when He's spiritually and, and dynamically that. And They took a, what is called a dynamic approach. Not, it's more than just a memorial. It's that his, realizing His very presence is there, but it's in that spiritual sense. I think you could look at Matthew 28.20, 20, the very last verse of Matthew. And he says, teaching them to observe all I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So is Jesus here bodily? Well, Luther couldn't say that the body of Christ could be in two places at the same time. And this is where you run into uh, some real difficulty here. And that's what the Swiss are really trying to come back with. Well, if his body is present here, but it's over over here at this church, it's present there, and at the same time his body is in heaven, we have a problem. And it does go against uh, that kind of teaching. And they they didn't they couldn't say that. Luther couldn't say that. But we know if you go back to the very early church days, they had councils. And at Chalcedon, they established that there is the two natures of Christ. Remember that? And the human, there is the humanity and there is the deity. And as far as his human sense, it is that. And so his body can't be in two places. And Luther and others would have to agree, well, that's right. But we have this dilemma and somebody asked Luther this, and he says, I don't know. But if Christ told me to eat dung, I'd do it knowing it was good for me. That's Luther. you got to understand Luther. He's saying, if Christ said it, that's good enough, and I can't explain it. And so he left it at that. Well, Luther is at his best, and he's at his worst at this time, because he cuts off anybody that wants to take a different view than that. Almost calling them non-Christians. Having a different spirit. How can you do that, Luther? Luther's my hero. Or one of my heroes, okay. <laughs> but there are a lot of things uh, that Luther did that I would not want to do. <laughs> but, it, but it takes individuals like that to do what he did. I, I know that. Um, but to him, it was non-negotiable. Uh, matter of fact, it, matter, it, it, it really meant how one had faith in Christ or not faith in Christ. Almost came down to that that point. The only thing is, is that he saw a copy of Calvin's writing on this matter. And to be honest with you, it was almost exactly like Echo Lampadius' view, which is the one who's the Swiss who's countering Luther here. Calvin and him had the same view. He didn't take it to the point where that was the very body of Christ in and with and under, but he did say the very presence of Christ is there when we partake of that. Of course, I think His presence is, is always there, but there is a special sense when we take that. And it, you know, the Lord's Supper is a, is, a, is a tough thing to try to get in your mind sometimes, but uh, uh, what happened out of this is that Melanchthon, who was on Luther's side, he started stiffening Luther up against the Swiss. And now you have the Germans and the Swiss, and theologically, they just didn't get along. And to this day, it still happens. Calvin's view was uh, was dynamic. It was called a dynamic approach, dynamic and spiritual. You can say, well, the, the two natures, Chalcedon established that. Well, the people that were on Luther's side came up with the word ubiquity. That's how they explain it. What is it, Barb? Everywhere. You can be in multiple places at the same time. It appears that way, to be that way. But you try to get a definition of that, and you're not going to get it. Well, what does that mean? Because you, you can't. His body can't be 
at different places. I mean, if God wanted to, but then all of a sudden, now you have the nature of man. His, his humanity is now going to be destroyed. And that's what all those uh, conferences that they had in the early church fought for. So, uh, they, they can't say the body took on the divine. They won't say that. And so the question is, well, how can it be at the table in heaven at the same time? And so this is where it's all at. Um, would, the, would Luther or Lutherans today say that uh, Christ's body is omnipresent? No, no, no. No. Not at all. There's a little trouble there trying to define it, to explain it. So the word ubiquity is done. Okay. But you know something that impresses me a little in all this, and it sounds horrible, and they ought to be in one mind. It mattered to them. Well, it was yeah. so important. I think that's lacking in the church today. You can't imagine something like this. Great men of God. Yes. At the same time. And this was so important, and it mattered the whole world to them, no matter who stood with them or even if they weren't doing right. That's right. They in faith believed they were. They were they were going by this word. Matter of fact, it's almost like a Romans fourteen almost starts to apply here, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it's important and it mattered. That, and that's a good point. Okay. It's a shame that it had to split it. It's really sad, but at the same time, they were standing up for it because it is important. And I believe this is what the Lord required. They both believe different things, but they believed exactly from the same motives. And they're, they'd both be using Scripture, you know what? So that they fought for that. Matter of fact, you'll find a lot of different things down through the years that you know Christians have different understandings on, and they they continue to fight for it. But they're still, if they're Christians, they're still in fellowship. They may not be worshiping the same church, but they're still Christians in the same body. But they, you know, they may they may duke it out. You know. Uh, I guess in a spiritual sense, but that's a good point. It was very, and it is important. It is important, it, and it's so important that this is why one of the reasons why we have so many different denominations today. That's good, but it's also it. it um, and I think for the most part, God uses these things. That's true. The, the pride then comes into man. They now do not know what they're fighting about. Right. came out of the, yeah. the Roman church, you, you really had difficulty. So memorial, well then hold it. Why would there be uh, such a heavy hand for the Lord if you, you know, if you did it in a worthy manner with only a memorial? So there's something more to it than just a memorial. So again, like you said, what is it? Yeah. All right. Well, God, I mean, we all know that God works in His own way and in His own time, and I think He's doing that now to correct in his own way and in his own time, the errors in the church here on earth, I guess that's called the church militant, right? I read that the other day. Yeah, and it shows man as man. Mm-hmm. I'm glad we're not uniform. That was practiced for centuries, wasn't it? That sure didn't work. You know, we we still have the freedom to have our understanding of Scripture. We have the Scripture in front of us. And we want to get it the best that we possibly can. But even at the end of the day, there's still going to be differences on it. But man, is, is he, can, he can misuse that or he can use it for good. You know, so... You know, having all the denominations, yeah, to, to people who are, you know, come from, you know, like a one church that's so supposed to be so uniform, which not necessarily, but let's say it's so uniform, they say, well, you're, you surely can't be from the right church because look at all the divisions that, that the Protestants have. I mean, you can't even count them. <laughs> but a Catholic Mass is a Catholic Mass no matter where you go. 
Right. It's but uniform, isn't it? I haven't seen them. But right. after, and ask those two people in that same church to agree on something, it's like no one's a jello to the wall. And I think it always comes down, well, let's, let's come and let's reason together and let's go into Scripture. And not that we're going to try to show off how much we know, but let's just go into here, let's look at them, let's compare them, and let's let God speak. And if we don't come to that conclusion, we'll still work at it. You know, it's, it, and it, that's the beauty of God's Word. It's so, if it was so simple... That and it is in one sense. It's very simple that you know little kids can understand it. But the profoundness of the Bible goes way beyond this, and I think that's an advantage of why there's so many different views on things that aren't necessarily really wrong. Sometimes it's it, it, you know God's word is so much above us too that yeah we might get a lot of different understandings, and some of those things can be very wrong. But some of them can, you know, be a little bit different angles. But um, I, th- I think God's word is really big, and it, it is really um, astounding how great it is. Uh, okay, you have you have Calvin, and you have Luther. They agreed on on really just about everything there, except that I put Calvin into this because he's known for the sovereignty of God. He's known for predestination and election. Luther actually, especially in his early days, preached it much more than even Calvin did. And whenever I talk, when we talk about the bondage of the will, one of the greatest books that, uh, was, that came out of the Reformation, Luther himself said it, that it was the best work that he had. In there, you cannot mistake predestination, election, you cannot mistake the whole idea of, of the absolute sovereignty of God and, and man is totally dependent on God for, for justification, right? Okay. Well, Luther had a right-hand man, a lieutenant or whatever, that was underneath him. But have you ever heard of this one? Um, the man is the head of the family and the wife is the neck. But it's the neck that turns the head. Anybody ever heard that one? <laughs> it, it usually gets a laugh, in a, but it's not too funny either, okay? Um, this is the way the relationship was with Luther and Melanchthon, and the rest is history. Is something like, in his relation with Luther, Melanchthon was in awe of Luther. And in a human sense, that's okay, that's good. I mean, he wasn't worshiping him, but he really respected Luther. Luther kind of demanded it just in the presence that he had and his teaching of the Word of God and everything. But at the same time, he was able to move Luther in some thinking or some people in in that line. But it was, and it was probably Melanchthon who actually turned the German Reformation against the Swiss not necessarily Luther, but Melanchthon who did that. And that was the first great division of Protestantism. That was So uh, Melanchthon did a lot of things that were maybe kind of behind the scenes, but I will tell you, he actually wrote the first systematic theology uh, in Reformed theology. Or, or at least not necessarily Reformed, but at that time, Protestant theology, I'll, I'll put it that way. That was 15 years before Calvin did it. So Melanchthon wrote systematic theology. He also negotiated with Roman Catholicism in Augsburg, and he was trying to get the Roman Catholic Church and and the Protestants back together again, as Luther did too. Melanchthon really pressed it. Yeah, their idea wasn't to try to get out and rebel against the Catholic Church; it was to to get the truths of Scripture back and uh, in the church that they had come from. But that obviously didn't happen. He, uh, there was one thing that he never agreed with Luther on, and I think it is an important matter. Augustinianism. Luther had that background, but we know whenever he became converted, he drew upon uh, Augustine's thoughts uh, almost completely. And he did not ever dare, uh, dare to differ with Luther openly. But he never bought predestination. 
Matter of fact, he would have been on the other side when Luther wrote Bondage of the Will. Who was he debating in that book? Erasmus. Melanchthon would have been on Erasmus's side. Luther writing Bondage of the Will, Predestination. And um, matter of fact, he said Protestantism uh, that would take on predestination and fatalism is a heresy. That's what he will bring on forth. Uh, he was captivated by Luther, and he never directly opposed Luther when he was alive. Luther died in 1546, and almost immediately, staying very, or coming forth with his honesty now and openly, he differed from what Luther had taught. And he brought back the, the Luther side of the Reformation to semi-Augustinianism, um, better known as semi-Pelagianism. And Melanchthon is responsible for that. He did not believe in predestination. And that's what the Reformation was really geared upon, from salvation to, to everything. And um, today, the Lutherans as a whole would come from that angle. Even though they will teach election, it's part of their belief, they would not take the view as a whole, there, there are going to be some individuals, but as a whole, they would not take the view that Luther did when he wrote Bondage of the Will. Luther made an impact on Reformed theology and lengthened, brought in synergism, which is really the sinner cooperating in regeneration. Now, the thing is, the Lutheran movement would not necessarily say that, but well, it, it was kind of... Luther was clearly monergistic. But then Melanchthon moved it away from a clear monergism to kind of... Um, mixed up uh, synergism along with it is God who saves us and He saves us by grace. But the, the sovereign, absolute sovereignty of God and predestination just turn Him off totally where God has uh, done this from the foundation of the world. Like in Ephesians 1, for instance. Verse 4, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. Uh, or you can drop down into verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Um, there you have the word predestination, and it's redefined. Taken the view that God did elect you because you only seen down to the portal the time that you were going to be good enough. No, uh, it's it's all uh, all by by God's grace. Okay. So there's the election part comes in, but the predestination is what really turned off Melanchthon, and then as time went on. As a whole, most people followed that rather than what Luther had taught about predestination and election. And it was a very softened, watered-down um, view. Um, and matter of fact, they will probably tell you today that, yeah, that was a great book, but Luther changed his mind. And you can ask, when did he change his mind and where can you get that to me because I want to see it. They, there's no writings. Luther never admitted it. He never apologized saying, oh, I was wrong. That was back in my early days. I've changed my mind now. In his later writings, he didn't really write about it or very much. He was on sacramentalism a lot in his later years. But he never ever went back on it and said he was wrong. There's no evidence that he recanted, and uh, it's not a good argument at all. Uh, just say, hey, we don't agree with what he wrote there, um, and what he's based on. And but his sovereignty of God was uh, really mighty and and very powerful, and that's what he based his whole theology on. Everything comes from there, from that high view of God. And of course, not saying Lutherans don't have a high view of God, but it was absolutely alien, foreign to the mind uh, of Martin Luther. Uh, 
in this in the sense. And of course, uh, the, all the reformers would would point that regeneration precedes faith. It takes God to waken you up, to enlighten you, to to bring you alive, and then you believe. Right? It's not our own belief; it's God's belief that He gives us, and then we can believe in Him. They, um, all reformers and Lutherans and Calvinists and such wouldn't, wouldn't agree on that. So you you have the issue of the Eucharist, and you have the soteriological one that um, Melanchthon really hit, and those are um, I think as um, I think of um, John Gerstner. He says those are two very serious errors of a great church, but they have hostility and resistance against the other Reformed side. <laughs> if you know Gerstner, <laughs> I, I can almost. No, I better not. Better not try. <laughs> Huh? That salvation uh, uh, of how one it, it goes to um, predestination okay. before the foundation of the world. Right. God chose you for no reason of us. Of course, that that Luther and Melanchthon were were definitely different on that. And the Book of Concord then, and it's it's time to close shop here, but. Whatever differences there were, the book of Concord came along. Melanchthon had a lot to do with that after Luther died. It was a typical guide for Lutherans, and the Lutherans regarded Calvinism as a form. Uh, later, they called it fatalism. Predestination is fatalism, the way that way they took it. And they said, matter of fact, it's worse than heathen, heathenism or Islam. Now, that's interesting, mentioning Islam back in those days. It was there then, and you and you read in some of the books uh, of um, reformed writings. No talk about Islam. I think I've seen it in Calvin's writings, and probably almost most of them. Uh, Spurgeon, of course, in the 1800s, he even so mentioned it. Explain fatalism. Fatalism is, you know, if you're fatalistic, you don't. It doesn't matter what what happens. God's already got everything all planned out, and uh, so it doesn't matter what I do or what I don't do. Um, and you just turn it over, and hey, it's you know, I don't have a chance. Fatalistic. You just going to do everything. Right. Um, that's that's the way that it was termed. The, that was those were called the old Lutherans, the the ones that had followed Melanchthon, and. The Reformed come from what would have been the Swiss side uh, and, and others. Um, they said, well, we don't see that to the, to the Lutherans. We don't see a heathenism. We don't see worse than Islam. We don't see their fatalism, but we see there's a wound in the body of Christ. It's not a fatal defect, but it's a wound. Now, Lutherans are looking at the other Reformed side and say, that's fatal. The other guys say, it's, it's a wound. So, anyway, that's um, that's some of the things that was going. This is uh, a really a, a hurt for the Reformation, isn't it? But God is going to work in this. Luther was an uncompromising predestinarian, and you read Bondage of the Will, and you'll get a heavy dose of that all the way through. And he was not a whit less than than Calvin on predestination, and uh, the, the articles that were written and the Book of Concord call uh, what would been we know as Calvinism profound heresy. So what we'd be teaching, those old Lutherans would have said we're, we're doing heresy here. And there's a difference in Christology. Of course, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about that. Restrict, you know, they would say, well, the, the other Reformed guys, they restrict Christ to heaven. And they deny his presence in the Eucharist, so the the war goes on, <laughs> and it's and it's still here today. Uh, but at any rate, uh, this is coming from a negative side, and uh, we'll have some things where it comes, you know, uh, other challenges. But it always makes the church stronger, you know. Even at that, they might have their differences, but the where the word of God is taught, His people will march on, won't they, with His truth. It, it, it's, it, and it is a militant church, and not only that, it's militant within <laughs> sometimes. But if it's for the reason, if, yeah, the Scripture says this. Here's what I believe it to be. I respect your thoughts, but I'm thinking differently here, and here's why, and I'll give you the Scripture. 
And uh, hey, that's healthy. But if if they just battle it out and they have a pride over the other one and they don't listen to the other one and, and they don't or, or one doesn't have scripture, then um, there's no contest. Yeah. I, th- I think each individual in the churches need to know what they believe. And so this is kind of, kind of helps us, hey, here's where we got here. We know that there's ugliness in the church down through the centuries. I'm going all the way back to early church history. And of course, you know, the, the Islams will, you know, they'll talk about the, the, the Middle Ages and, uh, of course, the Crusades and all that. Um, but but you, they've got their divisions within Islam. So. Exactly. Exactly. Um, history really shows man off uh, in whenever he's being led by God's Spirit and also shows the ugliness of man. And even when you have Christians killing Christians, that's pretty ugly, isn't it? But yet... We do want to stand for truth too. And I think that that's important. And so know what you believe and why you believe it. It's good to know we have a heritage and where it where it came from and what it was about. And it was it always came back to this. And this is this is this is what it what it is. And so that's why we want to keep studying and reading it. Uh, always reforming. We'll have a couple other sessions or so and try to take it up to a very current time. And see where that uh, all comes into play, where you have uh, uh, the, the Protestant uh, Reformed Church and how they've had counters. I would do better if you had pictures. What's that? Pictures of people. I would do better. Like yeah. yeah, I know. I need to work with that. That's right. That's about as visual as you can get, isn't it? 